Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Hear these words. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whomever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. I love the, uh, the poignant contrast of imagery that Jesus lays out in these verses. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if you lose your taste, your saltiness, you are no longer good for anything. You now have no purpose but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So the weight of this Sermon on the Mount just got real and Jesus is just getting started. Jesus says, uh, when he says that you are the salt of the earth, it it would bring three things to mind, three main things uh, for those listening. And in this time, it, it would bring to mind the epitome of purity, preservatives, and flavor. And we want to keep each of those three in in mind, each of these traits as we think about them this morning, right? It's like asking me if I'm a father or a son or a husband, right? Well, I'm I'm kind of all of them, right, Uh, at the same time, yet they're very distinct. So purity, preservatives, and flavor, they're all going to go together. But what do they mean? So Christians are supposed to be, notice I say supposed to be, the standards of purity for the world. If the Father of heavenly lights does not change like the shifting shadows, then neither can we settle on the acceptable standards of what we say and what we do the same way that the world does. Now, culture constantly changes, and in a sense, we should change with it. I'm not going to ride horse to church because that's the way John Wesley did it. But as culture shifts, we also see changes in what is acceptable. For example... Did you know that when they aired Leave It to Beaver in the late 50s, early 60s, that when they would show the parents' bedroom as, as part of the show, they would always show two different beds? Did you, did you ever catch that, right? Now, we never actually saw June or Ward in or even on either one of them. And even though they were, without question, a married couple, it was unthinkable uh, that they would share a bed. And at this time in our culture, we knew husbands and wives shared a bed, and there was nothing wrong with that, uh, but they wouldn't dare suggest something 
on TV. Having one bed in the room would cross the line. We've come a long way in our culture. Uh, we're not even really subtly suggesting anything anymore. It's just kind of right there in your face to remove all doubt. And while each of us uh, may get upset at different levels of what, is what, we, what we think is right and acceptable, uh, there's certainly a, a comfort level today that we would have been appalled by in the 50s. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go back to leave it to beaver morals, right? Where everything's black and white and no one ever gets mad and everything can be resolved in a calm, rational 22-minute discussion. No, this is not a call to some prudish value system where we're not allowed freedom of expression. But it is a call to be the models of what purity in Christ looks like. And I think because we as a culture have been uh, so convoluted in our thinking and our reasoning, we can no longer simply ask the question, where have we compromised our morals? I think a better question uh, for the 21st century is, what is going to be the base of our morality? Are we going to define what is right and wrong by what is socially acceptable or what is scripturally acceptable? And again, I could poll the room and we're gonna get a variety of answers of uh, the practice of Christian living uh, and morality, like welcome to the Methodist church. Uh, and even though we might have seemingly opposite ideals on, on these ideas, uh, one is not necessarily more right than the other. One of the joys of being in the Methodist church. But the point here is that as Christians, we have a different threshold of right and wrong, acceptable and unacceptable than the culture does. We have a base of morality that transcends what you and I think or what the masses have deemed appropriate. Hey, sometimes the masses get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong. What is going to be the baseline by which we assess our morality? Stick with me here, right? This goes way beyond don't smoke, drink, dip, chew, or date girls that do. Stole that from Andy Hurst, you're welcome. We are to be the purity that rises above the do's and the don'ts. Because unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We are called to a radical obedience of the commands of Christ in order that we might live our lives the way he lived his which was fully dedicated to God. This isn't about rule keeping or wrist slapping. We are to be the purity that shakes the culture free from its numbness, which is induced by desire. We are to proclaim that there is a different source of joy that will bring your life fulfillment in ways that you never thought possible. Not only was salt symbolic of purity, salt was used as a preservative. See, when meat gets infective, as it certainly did in the first century, it's no longer good. And if anybody eats it, they're going to get sick. Might sound like the pastor on Sunday morning. I don't know. Salt is a preservative. It has a certain antiseptic influence. It stops the growth of disease. Kind of ties into what we were just saying, don't you think? Are, are you going to let the world influence you? 
or do you want to be the antiseptic influence for the world? So again, salt exemplifies purity and it also preserves and it stops the spread of disease. You might be saying, well, okay, well, that's great, but how do I know where to draw the line in all of this stuff, right, Pastor? I mean, well, I'm glad you asked. When I heard God call me into pastoral ministry, I was working here in town at a place I won't name, uh, but I was hanging out with a colleague at lunch break and he was acting just like the world allows. Like, great guy, fantastic guy, good heart, uh, good character, but you know, smoking a few cigarettes, saying a few curse words, you know, whatever, whatever. And the point here is not the, the smoking and the cursing and all that. That's not, what got me about the situation was, you know, one day we're talking and he finds out I'm studying to be a pastor and then he, he kind of gets mad at me a little bit, like uh, almost shocked. He's like, why didn't you tell me all this? Why you like, if you'd have told me I'm out of smoking and cursing and doing. See, if he would have known he was in the company of the pastor, he would have changed his behavior a little bit. So let me talk to you just, just a second, Christian, right? It, it baffles me that we think we can live two different lives. We cannot live two different lives. There is not an acceptable behavior on Sunday that is different than an acceptable behavior on Monday. There is not an acceptable behavior in the company of the pastor that is different than acceptable behavior when the pastor is not around. So where do you draw the line? Like what's a good guide? Well, let's start with if it's not okay in the church and if it's not okay with the pastor, is it really okay? And you don't dare have to justify yourself to me or to this church. But there will be an account given before God about everything that we said and did or everything we failed to say or to do. As the salt of the earth, we are the embodiment of purity and we are the thing that preserves God's ways and stops the decay that is caused by the corruption of sin. And what was that last one, church? Oh, come on, did you forget? Flavor, that's the best part. Why do you put salt on your food? It's flavorful. Be flavorful, Christian. Make life interesting, right? The great theologian Tom Haverford reminds us that the commandment is thou shalt not kill. It doesn't say thou shalt not thrill. Life in Christ is amazing. It can't not be flavorful. Life with Jesus as the moral center will not be dull, uneventful, or boring. Joy of the Lord is not a metaphor. Met yeah, metaphor. Can't talk today. There is purity to be found in Jesus Christ. There is joy to be found in Jesus Christ, and there is radiating, everlasting, abundant joy that is available here and now. Be tasty. Just don't compromise your morals and don't let corruption set in and decay your flesh. That's all. Because see, I find Jesus' next words very interesting. He says, if you lose this flavor, this pizzazz about your life as a Christian, you are worthless. William Barclay says it this way, uselessness invites disaster. If Christians are not fulfilling their purpose as Christians, then they are on the way to disaster. 
This, so this should uh, beg us to ask the question, well, what is my purpose? And that's exactly where Jesus goes next. You are the light of the world. So let me just remind you just real quick, uh, John 9, 5, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Okay, so no pressure, uh, but Jesus has just put you on a plane with himself, okay? So if the standards weren't raised with that whole purity and preservatives bit from the salt analogy, Jesus is really going to raise the bar here. But the ancient rabbis taught, the Jewish culture understood that humans did not create their own light. I even had a rabbi tell me a, a few weeks ago that Israel, being the chosen ones, was never understood as them being the only ones, but it was being the ones who were chosen to be a light to the nations. Jesus is not calling us to produce this light, but to be a reflection of the light that he is. The word Christian literally means little Christs, right? Little, little minion, little, little uh, copies going around. It was, only a, it was originally a term that was used to identify and to mock those who followed Jesus. And it was easy, right? It was how we identified them. Well, how well their lives looked like his life. Their lives well, reflected his teachings and his examples. And so again, we ask ourselves, like, are Jesus' teachings some sort of Christian morality lesson that is parallel to or possibly better than self-help philosophies? Or does Jesus actually want to do something with us? Like, think about it logically with me, right? The entire purpose of a light is to be seen and draw attention. Quite naturally, if a light is on in the darkness, I don't have to try very hard to identify it. By its very nature, it makes itself known. And it's been said that there can be no such thing as secret discipleship. For either the secrecy destroys the discipleship or the discipleship destroys the secrecy. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket? Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. They put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. So if our Christianity does not go beyond this room, out of these doors, then we break the heart of the man who died for it. Our forgiveness of sin and salvation by Jesus Christ cannot result in us gathering here and going no further. That is the exact opposite of the gospel. Jesus did not stay isolated to one location or to one people group. Christ did not sit comfortably in the heavens. He came down and he walked among sinners so that we might be worthy to be in the throne room for eternity. If Christ cannot be seen in our everyday lives, and I'm talking to me just as much as I'm talking to any one of you, but if our lives do not reflect his light, if our lives do not point people back to Jesus Christ, the light of the world, then what are we doing? You say, well, I don't know if I signed up for all that, Pastor. What did you think it meant to give God everything you have and everything you are? It means to give him control of literally everything in your life. It means there is no microscopic inch of our lives that does not get invaded by the Holy Spirit. But it also means 
that every microscopic inch of our life is capable of radiating the greatness of God. And yes, this is a process, right? I mean, no one has everything about this Christian life completely right. We are all works in progress, but we all must be always progressing towards that Christian perfection, which is being totally consumed with the love of God to the depths of our soul, the entirety of our being. And now you say, well, well that's nice, that's, that's great, but if I'm honest, well, it all seems like a bit much, seems a bit hyperbolic. Now we're getting somewhere about your faith, amen? See, faith is not necessarily believing in something you can't see. Faith is trusting that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is enough, enough to square you with God and enough joy and peace and power in this life here and now. Do you believe? You say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And so I want to be clear on one thing. I am not immune to any of this, right? Pastors are not some sort of secret animal that does not struggle with being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I intentionally use words like we and us in sermons because everything I tell you is just as much for me as it is for you. It's my job to know stuff, to dig through the text, to sift out little gold nuggets and like deliver fun pieces of information to you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I've automatically translated all the head knowledge into heart knowledge. And so that's why the backbone of what we do in our Bible studies and our small groups must be focused on this question. How do we take what we know about God and turn that into living a godly life? How do we take what we know about God, turn that into living a godly life? The church community is supposed to band together and help each other figure that out. And then we are supposed to go out into the world for the glory of God. We want head knowledge to become heart knowledge. In the Bible, the heart is the center of everything you have and everything you are. It's a reference to your entire being. To obey God's law doesn't mean that we follow the rule book. It's a very Western way of reading the Bible. And that's not necessarily wrong, but when Middle Eastern Jewish Rabbi Jesus says that we're to follow the law and the prophets and to teach others to do the same, he means that we are to learn the commandments of God in such a way that they become part of who we are and how we live our lives. They aren't bullet points to know and lists to check off. And again, if you can do that, more power to you, but it's deeper than that. They are meant to be learned and embodied, lived out so that the world may know a God who transforms lives. It must be always clear in our lives as Christians that as we invite people to follow me as I follow Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, that we are never saying that I am the way, but that I know the man who is. I will stumble, I will fail, but if you will walk with me, 
I will show you that road that is full of God's loving grace and that leads to God's glory. It's much easier to walk down the hallway at night when the light is on, amen? Okay, for me, it is easier to walk down the hallway at night when the light is on. I'm glad that you have figured it out. A light clears the way. It illuminates the path. Salt purifies and it preserves. It adds flavor to life. Be you but don't compromise the who you are in Christ for who the world wants you to be. Become who you have already been created to be in Christ. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word this morning. We ask that you would continue to let it ruminate within our souls. Let it become a part of who we are and teach us how to live that out in this world. It's in Jesus' name and it's because of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. To find out more about Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityreston.org.